invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 14 with me today. We come to the final message before entering back into our context in 1 Timothy regarding the law. Last time we were together, we explored the depths of the law of Christ, the Christian's deep internal motivation driven by an appreciation for his redemption, empowered by the Spirit of God, compelling him into a life of purity that produces in him the virtues that we call the fruit of the Spirit and resists him when he walks contrary to sound doctrine. We saw how this whole thing is comprehended in the concept of love. And we keyed in on that word, not love as the world describes it today, not love as the world would define it today, uh, that being an emotion which changes with the circumstances, which changes with the winds, uh, which changes with my feelings, which uh, drives me to live within the context of what I want and how I feel and what I perceive as right. That is not biblical love. That's, that, that's a love as it's defined in the world today, but it's not love as the Bible speaks of love. We establish the reality that, that true love, that, that biblical love, that, that God's love is an unconditional choice. It's rooted in volition. It's not rooted in emotion. And it's a choice to do what is best for the object of my love, regardless of self-interest, regardless of circumstances. circumstances. Uh, true love, a love for God, a love for others that compels us inevitably unto both personal purity and unto tireless dedication one to another. Now we spoke of how Paul in no uncertain terms draws the believer to live this way, to call us to lay aside the weights of sin, our pride, our selfishness, our self-righteousness in order that we might wholly dedicate ourselves one to another. We talked about how grace elevates us to that plane, how it frees us from this idea of, of comparing ourselves one to another, of holding ourselves to, to this standard one against another so that I'm looking at others and comparing how I'm doing based Based upon this, this uh, uh, a standard of how others are acting, or or whatever the case may be, it, it brings me outside of an idea of self righteousness, outside of an idea of judgmentalism, and it frees me to be able to love and serve one another. We read through the exhortations of Romans 12 unto this end, that we would abhor that which is evil, that we would cleave to that which is good, that we would in honor prefer one another. And even to refuse, as the end of Romans 12 told us, to refuse to avenge ourselves on our enemies, understanding that we ought to even love our enemies, as our Lord Jesus Christ himself called us to do. And so the end of Romans 12 called for us to not be overcome with evil, to not requite evil with evil, but rather to overcome evil with good. Now today we're going to get, dig deeper. So last time we talked about loving God that leads us to personal purity, loving one another that leads us to set aside ourselves in deference to one another, that, that, that sets us to serve one another, that sets us up to honor one another, and not just to love the brethren, but to love our neighbor. We talked about who our neighbor is, and that is our neighbor are those with whom we are interacting, and how we are called even among the unbelieving world to reflect love one toward another, even as we said toward our enemies. I want to go one step deeper today. And as we get one step deeper, as we delve the depths of this liberty that God has given to us, this liberty into which we have been purchased by grace, 
what we find is that the freedom that has been given to us in Christ doesn't just free us to be kind to one another, but to truly serve one another in every sense of the word so that the needs of my brother and sister in Christ actually overshadow even my own. Not only as it relates to the material, but even and also as it relates to the spiritual. This message is for the believer that is really ready to live within the full essence of his liberty in Christ. It's a message that is going to stretch you. Anytime I talk about this concept, which is often called the the weaker brethren principle, it is a stretching message. It is a message that is going to ask you uh, for an extra layer of humility. The man who lives fully in his liberty will operate in a manner that is wholly different than the world around him, wholly different even than much of the churches we see it today. The man living wholly within his liberty will live a pure, unhypocritical love toward one another to the extent that he will serve not only the needs but also the conscience of his brother, even above his own. There are several passages that speak to this point. We're going to go to all of them today. We'll start in Romans chapter 14. Then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 8. Then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 10. You're there in Romans 14. We read this beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, Him that is weak in faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. He that regardeth not the day to the Lord doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he, giveth, uh, for he giveth God thanks. He that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks." For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. So our liberty in Christ, as is comprehended, inevitably means that we are not going to see eye to eye on exactly how we all choose to work out this life under God. God gives us different gifts. We are called into different contexts. We're called into different ministry. We're called to use those gifts in different ways. Some of us feel deeply compelled to restrain or constrain ourselves as it relates to certain things. Uh, Giving uh, preference in foods, giving preference in days, giving preference one day above another, the Lord's day, the Sabbath. Others have no such compulsion in the Lord. Paul says, let every man be persuaded in his own mind. It is not my job to judge the manner in which my brother or sister in Christ exercises their liberty in Christ. Now take note of how I said that. It's not my liber- it's never my liberty to, 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 to commit fornication, right? That, that's not within my liberty in Christ. It is not within my liberty in Christ to steal. It's not within my liberty in Christ to be idolatrous. It's not within my liberty in Christ to be drunken. Those things are not Christ. Those things are judged by the Word of God. They can be judged because they are judged by the Word of God. That's not what we're talking about here. Those are objectives spoken in the Scripture standards that in no uncertain terms can those things be compatible with Christ. As a matter of fact, Colossians tells us uh, 
that for these reasons the wrath of God falls upon the children of disobedience. We read this in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. The Bible says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. In this context, Paul says to believers, and I I skipped some of the context, but at the beginning of this chapter, he says, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. The idea, if you are risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. If you are dead to self, if, if you through the law are dead to the laws, Galatians 5 tells us, you are free to seek that which is above. You are free to set your affection on those things and you are called to set your affection on those things. You are compelled to mortify your flesh, the deeds of the flesh, those things which are incompatible with Christ. But in relation to our liberty to live this life, to walk free from the constraints and the condemnation of the law of Moses, to make choices, to set standards, to observe religious rituals or not, these are things unto which every man will answer of himself to God, knowing that those elements, and we'll explain this more in a moment, are intrinsically not in themselves clean or unclean. Food is intrinsically not in itself clean or unclean. The day is not intrinsically in itself clean or unclean. Keep that thought in mind. We'll come back to it in just a moment. Therefore, as we understand these things, we recognize that there are certain elements which fall within our liberty and thus are not to be judged by me as it relates to another. But for me to look at them and say, well, that's not my understanding. That's not what I think is best. That's not where I'm going with this. But you'll rise and fall before your own master for these things. You'll stand before God. And the question that we ask is it relates to some of these things. As you and I walk in this world and you make a decision to, to not do something that I make a decision to do or you make a decision to do something that I make a decision not to do, the question is can I stand before God in good and right conscience and answer for my decision? And, of course, we can fool ourselves and say, yes, 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 even though we're just pretending. But that's fine. That's just pride. That's that's a different problem altogether. It's not fine. What I mean by that is that's a different problem. If I'm willing to, to, to read the Word of God, see that something is wrong, and look another believer in the eye and say, yes, I'm confident that when I stand before God, I'll be fine, then that there's a deeper problem in that man's heart. But when you and I both in good, truly good conscience before the Lord, who have looked into the word of God, who have read the word of God, who love the word of God, who are both seeking truth, and we come to a different conclusion about something as it relates to a manner of living, a standard of direction. Okay, well, then you live that way before the Lord. I'll live this way before the Lord and we'll each answer to the Lord. And that's okay. Don't despise, Paul says here in Romans 14. He says, let not him that eateth, that's a person that's willing to eat meat, despise him that eateth not, a person that feels as though he should just eat herbs, eat eat plants, eat vegetables. And let not him which eateth not, the person that's just eating the vegetables, judge the one that eats the meat. Don't, Don't let the one who's exercising his liberty judge the one who won't. Don't let the one who's not exercising his liberty judge the one who is. For God has received him. So, these things, every man will answer to God. He will rise and fall before his own master. Paul says this as he continues. Back in Romans 14, we continue in verse 9. The Bible says, For to this end Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. 
But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. If I love the Lord, if I'm walking in purity, if I love my neighbor, if I'm mortifying my members which are upon the earth, but you and I disagree on some application of worship, but you and I disagree on some application of principle, if we disagree on what the Christian life might look like, uh, if, if we agree on what the Christian life might look like spiritually, but disagree on all the nitty-gritty of how we get there, don't set aside your brother for those things. Christ is Lord, both of the dead and the living. God has not given you the grace to bear the burdens of other man's applications of common biblical principles. You can and you will disagree with people. It's going to happen. We are all going to make decisions as to what we need or don't need as it relates to the word of God that, that are necessary for, uh, for, for us individually. There are going to be differences because of that. There are some people in here who, because of certain temptations, because of certain trials and tribulations, will say, no, I am not going to have a TV in my house. I am not going to have internet in my house. I am not going to go to these places. Whereas someone else says, look, I, before the Lord, can do this without, a, without sinning, without wrong, and I, before the Lord, will do that. And, I've, of course, you're setting boundaries, right? No man can set wicked things before his eyes without falling out of fellowship. And so there, there, are, there will be different lines that we will all draw, perhaps based upon our biblical needs, our, our sinful propensities, uh, our understanding of various principles of the Word of God. And all of that is, is right and good. But don't set aside your brother because you disagree with them on these things. You can discuss these disagreements. You can contend for greater levels of purity and righteousness. And, and, and these are good things. I have found myself, as perhaps many of you have, of changing over the years the degree to which I pursue certain things where I feel fine in, in, one, at one, in, in one context, at one season of life, I feel fine, and then I grow in the Lord. I read something else in the Word of God, and I say, you know what? I cannot in good conscience do that any longer, and it's gone, and it has to go away. And there have been times where it's gone the other way, where I, in, in a time of weak conscience, have said, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. And then as I've grown and matured, said, you know what? That's actually probably okay. Or a context has changed in society where at one point in society there's, a, there's something that is reputationally wrong and that reputation changes over time. And so what may have been wrong in 20, 30 years ago from a testimony standpoint today is not a testimony problem anymore. So don't set at not your brother for these things. But, be, but remember, we're talking about people who are walking in purity, who love the Lord, who are walking in good conscience. We're not talking about bad faith arguments. We're not talking about believers trying to justify their sinful choices. We're not talking about people that are, are enjoying the pleasures of sin and looking for some biblical reason to be able to enjoy the pleasures of their sin. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about good faith arguments. We're talking about good faith disagreements where we're all seeking truth, but have come to different conclusions as it relates to some of these principles. You and I agree on the need for purity and holiness and obedience to the word of God, but we disagree on the nitty gritty of what that might look like. And that's okay. And you can trust God with that and not to set your brother at naught for that. Now, that doesn't mean you need to engage with him. 
And it certainly doesn't mean, as we'll talk about as we continue, that you ought to convince someone who doesn't want to do something to, to do it. That, that's, not, that's not right. But don't set your brother at naught. Don't set him aside. Don't judge him for these things. Rest assured, they will stand before God and answer. You don't have to bear the burden of their choices. You don't have to bear the burden of, of worrying about whether or not they're doing the right thing. God will take care of them. You do what's right. You worry about you and those for whom you're responsible. If a man does what he does in sincerity of faith, confident to be able to stand before the Lord whom he loves and answer for it, then I can leave that to God's judgment and I'll focus on other things. But there's something that I ought to judge. So we've seen this, don't judge your brother in these things. He is the, 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 God is the God of the dead and the living. Don't judge your brother. Don't set him and not for these things. Verse 13, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now we're getting interesting. Now we're starting to plumb the depths of a real spiritual truth here. Here's what I should judge. I should not judge my brother, but I should judge whether or not I am in any action or inaction, in any word or in deed, causing my brother to stumble in his faith, causing an occasion of stumbling, an occasion to fall, to be put in front of my brother. I should be judging myself, not just on the basis of my liberty, but on the basis of my brother's concerns, my brother's conscience, and my brother's needs. Paul says there is nothing unclean of itself. Now, it's important to understand that while Paul is... is, is um, Couching these, you know, he's, he's talking here, he's talked about eating meat and he's talked about regarding a day, right? One eats meat, the other eats herbs. So we're not talking about eating meat offered to idols. We'll get there in 1 Corinthians. This is talking about the one who says, I, I'm willing to eat meat and the one who says, I'm only going to eat vegetables and fruit, uh, things that are grown. Now, most likely, as has been somewhat common from time to time in, in church history, that, that controversy would boil down to this. Well, before the, in, in the pre-Diluvian days, before the flood, they didn't eat meat. And so if I'm getting back to the, the ideal, God's ideal, well, in the Garden of Eden, they didn't eat animals, right? So it's people who, in good conscience before the Lord, desiring to be right with God, don't eat meat because they want to be living up to that ideal. And then those that say, well, here's the thing. God has given us the liberty to do so. Meat's delicious. It also, it, all, it also provides some important things as far as proteins and such. I'm going to eat meat. And that, there's that. But then he also talks about regarding a day or not regarding a day, right? Regarding a special day. This might have had to do with those believers who were still regarding the Sabbath day. Uh, there were a lot in Romans. There were a lot of, of um, people there in Rome who were Jewish, uh, in origin as believers. They were, they were Messianic Jews, as, as we might call them today. And as such, they may very well have still regarded the Sabbath day, whereas others would have said, why are you still regarding that day? We don't need to do that anymore. And Paul says, look, some regard the day, some don't regard the day. Uh, in Colossians, it talks about Sabbaths and ho uh, holidays and new moons and feasts. One regards it as unto the Lord. One does not regard it as unto the Lord. It's okay here, right? So we're talking about these sorts of things. The broader principle, when we see both of these in play here, we understand the broader principle. It's not just about the law of Moses. The law of Moses did not say they could not eat meat, right? So that's not even a law of Moses principle. 
This is a much broader principle relating to those things that are both material and temporal in this world, but which carry, as I said before, no inherent moral value themselves, but that people can regard as a source of spiritual defilement. Paul uses those examples here, eating meat, eating herbs, regarding days, not regarding days. In 1 Corinthians 8, as I mentioned, he'll talk about meat offered to idols versus not. All of these are examples that reflect a larger principle, warning us against assigning intrinsic moral value to things that have none. The way I wear clothes has a moral component, doesn't it? But the actual material itself does not. What I watch on TV has a moral component, but the actual glass and plastic of the TV itself does not. How much I eat or drink has a moral component, but the actual foods themselves do not. Do you see the difference? It's one thing for us to judge the activities that we might use, that, that we might engage in with these, component, with, with, with these materials, but it's another thing to judge the material itself. It's one thing to walk in uh, on a believer who is watching something vile and filthy on their television and say, that's a problem. It's another thing to walk into their house, simply see the glass and plastic hanging on their wall and say, that's a problem, right? One of them is intrinsically morally defiled. The other one is not, intrinsically. As I just said, the material and the temporal are not definitive standards by which we can gauge spiritual defilement. But as we have considered before, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, that defileth a man. Paul then says, however, and this is essential, even if something isn't unclean in itself, if a man believes it to be unclean, then it is unclean to him. Now, this isn't that. Think about that with me. Even if something is not in itself unclean, if a man believes it to be unclean, then it is unclean to him. We have been driving throughout this whole series directly to the heart, directly to intents, to motives for what we do. This is what we're thinking about here. By virtue of our regard for God's word, for purity, for morality, we are a people who love objective standards, right? Particularly, we might say a group such as this and a church such as this, we are a people that tends to strongly appreciate objective standards. We know by objective standards, whether we're right with God, whether we're, whether we're not right with God, we love that. But here Paul introduces an explicitly subjective element to the mix. Paul knows and is fully persuaded that nothing is unclean of himself. Paul says, this is what I know. This is what I am fully persuaded, that nothing in itself is unclean. But if, I if, if, if you or I deem something to be unclean, then to you it is. And this brings us right back to the thrust of this whole series. In the eyes of God, the thing that matters most is my heart, my intentions. And remember what we mean by this. Fact of the matter is, I can do actions with my heart very far from God. But if my heart is close to God, my actions kind of take care of themselves, don't they? Old Testament, New Testament alike, what God has always wanted 
is our hearts. And this is the exact thing that the law could not secure. This is exactly why the law was a failure. The law judged externals, but had no capacity to judge the heart. So you could not tell, nor would there be any means within the law itself to, to establish righteousness. Because a person could have their heart uh, excessively far from God and yet still keep the letter of the law. This is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees had done. They had erected a system surrounding the law that enabled them to keep the law while simultaneously not having to have a heart of love for God. The law could not give life because it could not free a man from the darkness of his own heart. It could not free a man from the consequences of his wrong actions. It could not liberate his conscience. This has always been the standard. It's not just a New Testament thing. This is what God has always wanted. You can read about it in Isaiah 1, in Habakkuk 6, uh, excuse me, Hosea 6, in Micah 6, uh, any number of Old Testament passages. We'll go to a few of them in a couple of weeks. To this end, if I'm doing a biblically moral thing in the spirit of pride, if I'm attending church out of some element of pride, self-righteousness, well then... I'm still sinning because in my heart is pride. It's not sin to go to church. But if what drives me to church is pride, well, then there's sin in my heart. And the external action just isn't enough. If I'm doing biblical moral things in the spirit of self-righteousness, I'm sinning. If I'm doing biblically moral things in the spirit of rebellion, I'm sinning. And again, let me stress that this does not work both ways. You cannot live immorally, but say, well, God knows my heart. And think that this means you're not in sin. You cannot operate in a manner that is contrary to Christ and justify it because, well, you mean well or you're well-intentioned. You can say that your heart is right with God while you live in sin, but it's simply not true. A heart cannot both be right with God and walking contrary to Christ. It doesn't work that way. You may fool yourself and others, but on the day of judgment, you will answer for those sins nonetheless. But it can work the other way. You can look good on the outside while still having your heart very far from the Lord. And this is why this series is so important. It's why we stress these things so strongly, because there are people listening under the sound of my voice today who have operated in churches like this and conservative churches, Orthodox churches for years, maybe even decades. And you've conformed to the expectations, especially common among second, third and fourth generation Christians where you grew up in a Christian home. So you've known this stuff since since the beginning. And you know how you, you know when to stand and you know when to sit and you know how to pray because you've heard prayers for years and you sound you sound good in your prayers and you look good on the outside and you know how to talk and you know how to say the right things and you know how to invoke all the right catchphrases and you know all of this stuff because you've been around it forever. But inside your heart is rebellion and anger and selfishness and pride and you think that you're okay with God because of what you are or you aren't doing externally but your heart is far from him. You actually aren't pleasing God. You aren't actually right with God. You aren't actually growing in grace. You aren't actually progressing in your Christian walk. And that's okay because nobody else, nobody's on your back about it because you're a good kid. Because you're a good person. Because you're, you're a good member of the church. And you don't realize this, but you have all of the material and the temporal ducks in a row You've disciplined your flesh, but you're far from God. 
You say, I'm not like those sinners that do that or that listen to that or that go to those places, that watch those shows, and then you become judgmental and you become arrogant and you are unkind and you're selfish and you don't bridle your tongue and you lack self-control and your heart is far from God, but you don't know it because you have judged your relationship with God on the basis of the material and the temporal. Contrast this with the man who understands his liberty in Christ, who knows that the things of this world are just material and temporal, who seeks to the heart of God, who examines his heart against the heart of God, who, yes, all of those other things, there may be no manifest physical difference, material difference, as we've talked about before, between the man whose heart is with God and the man whose heart is not from God as it relates to those material actions. But the man whose heart is right with God is examining his heart. He is seeking to aspire unto the Lord. He is living in humility and in repentance. Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. That man's heart leads him unto God's heart. And that man will grow to love what God loves and hate what God hates. That man will, by nature, progress in his love for God that will compel him unto those same righteous actions. And this is the focus that is far more worthy of our time, far more worthy of our focus. That's what we're talking about here. You know, a couple years ago, our van started having a problem. Uh, when I turned the headlights on, the, the headlights would come on. Um, but if the fuse that governed the rear running lights would blow. And so I'd have people flashing their lights at night because I had no lights on on the back. The brake lights still worked, so when I hit the brakes, the lights would come on, but the running lights would not. So people figured I didn't have my headlights on, they'd be flashing their lights. My headlights are fine, They're, uh, it's all good. And then I finally figured out, well, those running lights weren't working. And so I went and I found the fuse, I identified which fuse had blown, and I replaced the fuse. And I turn the car on again, and we get going, and wouldn't you know it, next time it's dark, they're not working again. I check the fuse, the fuse is blown again. I replace the fuse again. Blows again. Now, I could keep doing that. I could keep replacing, I could buy a thousand fuses, and I could just keep replacing that fuse over and over and over again, focusing upon the symptom of the problem rather than actually looking for the cause of the problem. But instead, what do I do? I say, there is something wrong here, and I go looking for the short. And I found the short, and it ended up being where the trailer had been wired into, the tra trailer hitch had been wired into uh, one of the rear, rear taillights. I fix it, I replace the fuse, and the fuse doesn't blow anymore because we're no longer shorting out. I fix the problem, and the symptoms go away. See, if you're struggling... Let me rephrase that. The externals of the Christian life, the things that we do on principle, the things that we believe are right and are well, those are symptoms of a heart that underlies what we think, what we're driven to do. The danger is when we start looking at the symptoms and when the symptoms aren't right, when, when, when the results aren't right, we just start trying to patchwork the results, changing the results, disciplining ourselves to conform to a measure of results. But if I take my eyes off of the results for a moment, what's coming out of my mouth, what I'm wearing, what I'm watching, and I dig down to the, to the actual cause, my heart before the Lord, if I can fix that, you know what's naturally going to follow? 
all those symptoms, all those externals. But if I just fix the externals and I don't actually fix the problem, I'm a hypocrite. My heart is far from the Lord and I will confirm myself in that and I can dig deeper and deeper and deeper into that and I might look the same as the other guy. But before the Lord, there's a deep, deep problem. I can spend all day focusing upon the symptoms, which the law makes abundantly clear to me at every failure. Or I can see my sin as a symptom of a deeper problem and seek to God to solve that problem. This is the true gospel promise, right? To solve our sin problem. This is is the, the, the potential of the gospel. Well, is it true or isn't it? I can grow in my knowledge of God. I can flee to the power of God's Spirit to produce righteousness in me. I can magnify and aspire into the spiritual principles laid out in the Scriptures and watch those symptoms disappear. Or I can try to discipline them out of me and become a hypocrite. And the point is that the heart is the standard. And this, not just as it relates to what I can do, but also what I, what I genuinely believe I cannot do. The heart is the standard. If in my heart I honestly deem the eating of meat to be unclean before God, if I cannot in my own heart honestly and good conscience say this is really what I think, think I ought to do, if I honestly believe that I ought to not eat meat before the Lord, okay, well then before the Lord don't. Wonderful. Please the Lord in your heart. Even though Paul explicitly says here, it's okay to eat the meat. If you deem it unclean, it's unclean to you. Now, you might grow out of that. You might grow and learn, and that might change. But that's okay. If I believe it matters, if I believe that I should not do something before the Lord in good conscience, and I do it anyway... In that moment, what's in my heart? It's a manner of rebellion against God. If I know someone hates the color blue and they invite me to their house and I wear all blue, I wear a blue shirt and I wear blue pants and I wear a blue belt and I wear blue shoes and I wear blue socks and I go find some blue-rimmed glasses. Now, morally it is not wrong for me to wear blue. I can wear blue all day. Blue is not sinful. But the spirit by which I chose to wear blue is sinful, isn't it? To wear blue is to walk uncharitably toward my brother. Silly example, okay? I I acknowledge that. It isn't a sin to wear blue, but it is a sin to walk uncharitably toward my brother. When I step into his house wearing blue, I'm still not sinning by wearing blue. But you know what I've just done? I've just knowingly, purposefully walked uncharitably against my brother. And the Bible says, love thy neighbor as thyself. Which means I'm not fulfilling the command of the Lord. Because I chose to wear blue that day. In that instance, wearing blue is objectively displeasing God. Not because of the blue, but because of the heart with which I'm wearing it. I hope that makes sense. Paul explains this as he continues. Romans chapter 14, verses 15 and six, 15 through 18, excuse me. But if thy brother, here it is, but if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, 
Now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Don't destroy your brother for the sake of some material and temporal thing. You say, hey, look, it's just meat. I'm going to eat meat, and he's going to get over it. He's going to come over to my house. Look, it's not wrong to eat meat, so he's, I'm going to serve him meat, and he needs to get over it. Wrong. Wrong. No. Let's just turn that around for a moment. After all, it's just meat. Exactly. It's just meat. So you get over it and feed him some vegetables. Elevate your brother's conscience above that meat. Walk charitably towards your brother and don't ask him to eat the meat. And if you do, knowingly, that which hurts your brother's spiritual walk, which might cause him to stumble into a heart of rebellion against God, then while eating the meat itself is not an offense to God, your willingness to hurt your brother, to spiritually affect his life in some way for the sake of your material desire, for the sake of your temporal desire, is directly disobedient to the objective standard of grace. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Therefore, you are in offense. It is sin to you. Don't allow your good, Paul says, the liberty that you have in Christ to eat that meat Don't allow your good to be evil spoken of by the way you use that liberty. Is there anything more frustrating when you have a liberty and you love that liberty and you see somebody using that liberty in a way that that denigrates it or that makes it evil spoken of? A little while ago, uh, I went downtown. There was somebody who was advertising on Craigslist some free tile. And they, were, they said, we're going to have a couple of pallets of tile. I think they said we're going to put them out at nine in the morning, sometime like that. And it'll be first come, first serve. You come get the tile. And so I went down there and I got down there early. I got down there like at 7.30, an hour and a half. And there were probably five or six people uh, ahead of me who had been there even longer. And so we're talking, we're getting to know one another, whatnot. And um, then, you know, 8 o'clock rolls around, uh, 8.30 rolls around. There's more people showing up. 9 o'clock rolls around, like 8.55, a bunch of people show up, right? And here we've been waiting for almost two hours to get this tile. And naturally, you know, the people that show up last because they just roll this pallet out, out and it's just sitting there. Um, the, the people that showed up last five minutes before, they decided that they didn't want to wait to get the tile. And it just kind of became a free for all. And so me and a couple of the other people were sitting there saying, hey, look, this is not right. Like with anything in life, a person waited their time. They should be able to get the tile that they were waiting for. This is, this is what civilized people do. This is what rational people do. And then one of these men that had been waiting with us the whole time got a little bit more angry than that. And he started yelling and he started swearing and he started telling everyone, and I'm a concealed to carry holder, implicitly threatening that he's going to pull out a gun and shoot someone because they want his tiles. And at that point, now... The right to, 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 to carry a weapon, concealed or otherwise, we're not a concealed carry state, we're, we're just a carry state, but the right to, to carry a weapon is a blessing as far as self-defense is concerned, as far as these things are concerned. Here's a man that was abusing that right. Here's a man that was taking that right and, and threatening to shoot someone over tiles. That, 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 that's not equivalent. Here's a man who was taking what is a, a right that I appreciate 
and he was making it contemptible. He was contemptibly using a liberty that he was given. And every time some foolish person uses the threat of a gun to try to get his way in such a way, he makes the whole effort to maintain our liberties look bad. So that now, all 50 people that are there trying to get tile on that day, when some politician gets up and says, these people are just crazy kooks, they'll think back to that incorrect exercising of that man's liberty and say, you know what? It's true. The liberty to carry a firearm was evil spoken of on that day. He allowed that liberty to become evil spoken of. Fortunately, he didn't draw the gun, by the way, um, probably because I told him I had one on me too and I would resist him in such efforts. Um, that was a contemptible use of liberty. That's what Paul means when he says, let not your good be evil spoken of. Don't allow the fact that you have every right to eat this meat be a point by which you divide, harm, or confuse other believers. The kingdom of God has nothing to do with the material and temporal, nothing to do with meat or with drink. If you serve God in righteousness, peace, and joy, you're pleasing God. If the heart is in line, the rest will naturally follow. If your next priority then is your brethren, you will do well. Their faith, their walk in Christ. Verses 19 through 21. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to eat drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. So the focus on the spiritual here is the point, not the material or the temporal. Don't focus on the meat. Focus on your brother. How can you edify your brother? How can you have peace with your brother? Don't destroy the work of God for the temporal and the material. All things are pure, but if a man cannot eat without offense, if it is wrong to him, don't lead him into that wrong. It is better for you to set aside the material and the temporal liberty that you know you live in, in Christ, altogether, than to have a brother stumble. Now, one quick word on this concept of offense. Everyone is offended by everything today. So we need to be careful about what it means that you have caused your brother to be offended the word here does not mean what it means today. We already talked about uh, the redefining of the word love. I say the word Jesus in public today and people get offended, right? Does that mean that I should not say the word Jesus in public? I wear a Broncos hat and the Vikings fans among us get offended. Does that mean that I should not root for the Broncos? The word offend here does not mean what it means today. Today, the word means to arouse displeasure to arouse anger or to arouse resentment, to wound someone's feelings. That's what it means today. But the word in the Bible means to cause to trip up or to cause or entice unto sin. Don't cause a spiritual conflict in the heart of your brother just for the sake of exercising your spiritual liberties. If I make somebody feel bad by my opinions, uh, that's, that's going to happen. We're all going to make each other feel bad sometimes. That's not what it means. I don't have to, I'm not bound to my brother's feelings. I'm bound, in, in a sense, to my brother's conscience. I'm not always going to feel good about the choices other people make. But there's a difference between me feeling good about the choices you make and you trying to cause me to make choices that, that I believe are wrong. 
Me not feeling good about what you're doing, that's my problem. You trying to make me do something I don't want to do, that's your problem. You understand the difference? Don't, don't, don't let that, again, don't let that mix you up here. Have careful regard for the conscience of your brother in the context of the temporal, the material things which you will or won't do, particularly before his eyes. And we see that here as um, we wrap up. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm a few verses behind here. I don't know how that happened. Um, we wrap up here in verses 22 and 23. I was just seeing, you know, if you, if you had your Bibles with you. Um, verses 22 and 23, the Bible says this, Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. The law of Christ does not bind us to a direct set of actions, but it does bind us to an enduring set of principles. The first we've explored earlier, that what I'm doing is consistent with Christ. Is what I am doing consistent with Christ? The second we have here, what I'm doing is not going to cause a brother or sister in Christ true spiritual distress, a faith crisis, and put them into a, into a personal crisis of faith. For the sake of my liberty, the work of God in the heart of another should not be compromised. Yes, you can wear that, but should you wear that in the presence of a particular brother or sister in Christ? Yes, you can watch that, but should you watch that if you've invited a brother or sister in Christ to watch something with you? Yes, you can eat that, but should you eat that in the presence of that particular brother or sister in Christ? That's the question. The law of Christ binds my public actions to my brother's conscience. Now, in verse 22, Paul specifically says, if you have faith to do something that otherwise, uh, um, that, would, that would otherwise bother a believer, fine. Have that faith before God. Exercise that faith to do what you, to, to do what you want to do. Invite your brother over for a meal. Eat vegetables with him. And then when he leaves... Make a big steak. That's fine. Do that. You can do that. It's your right in Christ to eat the steak. But don't, don't ask him to eat the steak. Right? It's, 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 it's about, you can, have, you can have your faith to yourself before God. Happy is the man that doesn't sit under condemnation for things that God has allowed you to do. You can understand your liberty. And the fact that, you're, that you are limiting your liberties does not intrinsically mean that you have to acknowledge you don't have them. This was one of the things when I was down at Bible college. We were at Bible college. I had a lot of rules. And one of the things that always troubled me was these people, these, these, these guys that would come up. I was in a position of authority for several years and they'd say something to the effect of, well, I'd be a hypocrite if I followed rules that I don't actually believe in. I don't, I, I, these are the rules of the school, but they're not my rules. They're not my standards, so I'd be a hypocrite if I lived by those. No. You come to the school. You live by the standards they ask. You sign your name to a piece of paper saying, I'm going to follow the rules. I'm going to regard them, and you do it for their sakes. You do it for the sake of order. You do it for the sake of principle. You do it for the sake of, of what is right. And then when you go home in summer, do, do, what's, do what you want to do. They're not, they're not writing home to mom and dad asking whether you're following the rules at home there's no contradiction there between doing limiting your liberties within a certain context and then freely living within them in another context that's okay it's the same thing with a brother it is no contradiction for you 
to limit your liberties be, for the sake of a brother or sister in Christ for a time, and then to not live that way when they're not around. That's, that, that's not a problem. That's showing grace. That's showing consideration for your brother or sister in Christ while simultaneously not despising the liberties that you have in Christ. That's okay. So Paul says this, restrain yourself when you're in the presence of believers who could face a spiritual crisis through your actions. Happy is the believer who doesn't rest under the guilt of doing things that are perfectly within his liberty to do, but not at the expense of the faith of the conscience of those who don't see that liberty as their own. Because if they do it, it would be an offense to their understanding of God. And so it would not be by faith and whatsoever is not a faith of sin. Therefore, if they eat that meat, even though it's not wrong before God to eat the meat, just like the wearing of the blue, right? It's not wrong to eat the meat, but if they eat it thinking it's wrong, then what is in their heart at the moment of their consumption? Rebellion. They believe with all their heart that they should not be doing this and they're doing it. Therefore, in their heart is a willingness to rebel against God. It's not a faith. Therefore, it's sin to them. Whether the action is or is not sin, if I'm acting outside of faith, I am sinning. Your freedom does not extend to a right to cause your brother or sister to stumble. Paul expresses this in, in a very similar way in 1 Corinthians 8. We're going to jump now to 1 Corinthians 8. Beginning in verse 8, the Bible says this, But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see uh, thee which hast knowledge, sitting at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standest, lest I make my brother to offend. If I have the knowledge to know that meat is just meat. In this case, we're not talking any longer about eating meat or eating vegetables. We're talking about eating meat offered to idols uh, versus, not, versus eating meat that is not offered to idols. And if I have the knowledge to understand that meat is just meat, that meat is not more or less sinful because of the cow that it was sourced from, right? Because that cow was in the field of a pagan versus that cow in the field of a believer or whatever the case may be. Because that meat has been dedicated unto an idol or, or that meat hasn't been. The, the fact that a, meat, that a piece of meat is dedicated to an idol does not change the, the meat itself, right? It does not change the substance of the meat. It does not all of a sudden make the meat uh, uh, have some sort of evil, intrinsic evil to it. I can eat that meat with thanksgiving. I'm not sinning before the Lord. But if my brother is convinced that this would be a breakdown of personal separation. If he says, no, we're supposed to live separated under the Lord and that meat has been offered to idols, we should not associate with it. And thus, in his own conscience, it would be a matter of sinfulness as it relates to personal purity. And then I eat that meat and through my example, he is also emboldened to eat the meat and offend his own conscience then I, through my knowledge, through my liberty, have caused a brother to perish, that idea being to fall into sin. The same idea that James gives in James chapter 1, the idea of, of death here being spiritual death, a loss of fellowship 
with the Lord. The lust that enticed the man to sin and sin when it was finished brought forth death in the believing sense, falling out of separation with God. So my liberty and my knowledge encouraged a man to offend his conscience, to eat the meat with the heart of rebellion, and so to sin, the wages of sin being death. And Christ died for that brother. And when I sin against my brother for whom Christ died, I sin against Christ. So I may not have offended an objective law in that I put that meat into my mouth, but I have offended the law of Christ to love my brother, to love my neighbor as myself by not walking charitably toward my brother. So Paul determines if meat will make my brother to offend, again, that word offend meaning to be enticed to sin, to be caused to stumble, he says, I will not eat meat. I'd rather never eat meat again than to allow one brother to be offended. So we're called to love the brethren particularly. Now we're going to move on to the next case. Okay, so that's the brother, right? That's the brother in Christ. That's the brother who has what the Bible calls a weak conscience. And that's not intended to be a put down. The idea of a weak conscience is not intended to mean that you're a lesser Christian. It just means that you have a more sensitive conscience in one area or multiple areas of your life. And that's okay. It is okay to have a sensitive conscience. That is not making you a weaker or a less mature believer in any sense, per se. But what about, what about the unbeliever? What about the enemy of the truth? What about the man who's made himself my enemy? To love my neighbor does not just mean the person uh, that is my brother in Christ. It, it means those people that I interact with. We talked about the parable that we often call the parable of the Good Samaritan last week. And we saw that to be the case. The fact that it was the Samaritan that helped the Jew, even though they were, uh, culturally speaking, mortal enemies. Paul speaks within the same context toward the end of 1 Corinthians 10, the, the same idea of eating meat sacrificed to idols, but this time as it relates to unbelievers. We read the beginning of the chapter a couple of sermons ago in 1 Corinthians 10. We spoke about the law being a shadow of better things to come, that the Old Testament set an example for us that we should not be idolaters as Israel was uh, idolatrous, that we should not commit fornication as they did in the wilderness, that we should not tempt Christ as they tempted Christ, that we should not murmur against our authorities as they murmured against their authorities. Paul then appeals to fellowship and he, said, he appeals to the, the very cup of the communion of Christ and the bread which we break together that we are one body, that we are partakers of one bread. And he uses that as an example of how important it is that we maintain a strong testimony among the unbelieving world. So we have talked already about 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14 and how we are to uh, respond and perhaps even limit our liberties as it relates to the conscience of a brother or sister in Christ. Now let's consider a very similar thing as it relates to the unbeliever. Picking up in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says this, What say I then, that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. So Paul just had this discussion in chapter 8 about how a man who regards the liberty to eat meat sacrificed unto idols uh, is, is able to do so, and he can do that uh, and live happily in his conviction of, of, of his knowledge of the fact that meat is not changed simply because it's offered to an idol. But then here we, we come to, to chapter 10. And Paul draws upon this same illustration 
to talk about our lives before the unbeliever. That the considerations of how I as a believer use my liberty in Christ must extend beyond just whether or not I cause my brother to stumble and must extend to my testimony or the testimony of Christ in the unbelieving world. Yes, an idol is nothing. It is just stone. Yes, things offered uh, to idols, uh, it, it's nothing. Things that are offered to idols, it, it does not change the intrinsic value of the thing just because it's been offered to a piece of stone. But here's the interesting thing about this. That's how I understand it. And I understand it that way because I'm a believer. I know that that, 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 that rock that they've carved into the shape of some idol, I know that that's not actually a god, that they're just praying to a rock. And yet, simultaneously, that's not how the unbeliever sees it. When an unbeliever erects an idol, they are praying to a god. They see it as a god, and it's certainly not the one true god. You see it as nothing. They see it as a sacrifice unto a false god, unto a devil. And though I may have the freedom to eat that meat, the exercise of my freedom before an unbeliever might damage the testimony of Christ before the eyes of that unbeliever. We'll talk about the scenario in just a moment as we continue in 1 Corinthians. I am just eating meat because I'm hungry. But if an unbeliever interprets my eating of meat as a regard for their devil, then my action has hindered the testimony of Christ and I need to watch my liberty. I need to guard my liberty. Just because I can do something doesn't mean I should do something. Just because an action is not going to threaten my fellowship with Christ personally in itself, it will threaten it as it relates to walking uncharitably, not loving my neighbor as myself. But just because in itself that thing is not explicitly a sin does not mean that I'm not going to have other negative consequences. And if I knowingly and willingly damage the testimony of Christ before an unbeliever, I'm walking uncharitably, I'm not loving my neighbor as myself, I'm offending the law of Christ. The law of Christ, which freed us from the law of Sinai, compels us to consider these things. Liberty is always, always accompanied by responsibility. Freedom always comes at the cost of personal accountability. Whether we're talking about the liberties that we hold in this nation or whether we're talking about the liberties we hold in Christ, it comes with responsibilities. And God is serious about this. So Paul says in verse 24, let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth, another's well-being. This is echoed in Paul's exhortation in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, related to our liberty. He says, for, for brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. See, the world is, uh, the, let, let, let's talk about the United States. We've got a real problem today because people have been convinced through modern education and through uh, Hollywood and through, through these sources of, of lies and indoctrination that their liberty means, it, that, that liberty is, is a selfish ambition. That liberty has everything to do with them. And, how, and their freedoms and how they have the right to live and how they have the right to not be offended and how they have the right to themselves and to, to their own little world. They have the right to always live in a safe space and to never have to feel danger, never have to feel harm, never have to feel un, uh, any sort of insecurity. That They have the right to not have to pay off loans. They have the right to not have to live not knowing where their health care is going to come from. They have the right to not, not have to live without knowing where food's going to come from. They have the right to, to everything. That everything that they want is is a right to them. And that's how they see their liberty. And the Bible says that's not what liberty is about. Paul says, don't, don't use your liberty in Christ for yourself. It's not about you. Your liberty in Christ is about others. 
You are free in Christ to serve others. Liberty comes with responsibility and accountability, not for myself intrinsically or exclusively, but for others as well. So once again, I exhort you, if you think Paul's insistence upon liberty in any way frees you from responsibility or accountability, if you've been duped by the prevailing false theology and unsound doctrine that pervades the church today that has caused people to think that your liberty frees you to look like the world, to act like the world, to live in a license to sin, to continue in sin that grace may abound, to offend your brethren in Christ by your actions, or to mar the testimony of Christ among unbelievers, you are wonderfully mistaken. You are mistaken. And to that, to that end, much of the church is missing out today on, action, on their true liberty in Christ. To live in liberty is not to be a libertine. To live in liberty is not to live unbound by expectations. Much to the contrary, to live in liberty frees me from the guilt, the shame, and the condemnation of the law. It gives me the liberty to use this world without abusing this world. But this freedom carries with it the responsibility of using this liberty, especially as it relates to others, Carefully, And now we get into the example, verses 25 through 28. Paul says, Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that eat, asking no question for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not, unbelievers, bid you to a feast and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you, eat, asking no question for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for the sake of... Uh, for his sake that showed it, and for the con- and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness of there, uh, thereof. So we have two scenarios here. First, being meat that was sold in the shambles. That would be the meat market. I want meat. It's a good price. It's a good piece of meat, so I buy it. I don't need to ask whether or not that guy had dedicated all of his earnings to, to, to Zeus before buying that meat from him. I'm, I'm not asking. You're not telling. I'm going to buy this piece of meat. I'm okay here. I eat with thanksgiving unto the Lord. The Lord is honored by my eating of it. I'm strengthened by the meat in order to serve the Lord better. It's all well. Likewise, if an unbeliever bids me to go to a feast, so I'm going to a feast with an unbeliever, and I'm disposed to go to that feast, and so I sit down with my unbelieving acquaintance, and they set meat before me. I say, well, great. Look, it looks delicious. Thank you for the meat. That's a wonderful thing. I eat the meat. Change the scenario. I sit down with my unbelieving acquaintance. They bring the meat. And my my unbelieving acquaintance is sitting there next to me and they say, this meat has been dedicated to Zeus. And then they set the meat before me. Then I don't eat the meat. Not for my sake, because it's still just meat, but for the sake of the person who invited me. For the sake of putting a separation between me and Zeus. Not between me and the meat, me and Zeus. So that I have just set a good testimony for the man that's with me that I am not going to associate myself with a devil, with a false god, because I serve the only one true and living God. Because the earth is the Lord's, and for the sake of the conscience of the unbeliever who invited me, I am going to guard my testimony in my liberty. If the disposition of that meat before the eyes of the unbeliever can reflect the reality that God is Lord of heaven and earth then I should do whatever it takes to reflect that reality. God is Lord of heaven and the earth, and as the Lord of heaven and earth, I'm not going to eat that meat because it's been dedicated to Zeus. Whereas in another situation, God is the Lord of heaven and the earth. He has, he has blessed me with food. I'm going to eat that food. Same meat. Different scenario. To love my brother as myself is the, the, the hinge upon which my actions turn. 
so that in one context, eating the meat might be wrong. In another context, it might not be. Verses 29 to 31. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that which I give thanks? Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Paul asks, why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? That doesn't seem fair that I should have to abstain from something I'm allowed to eat just because of the ignorance or misunderstanding of some person I'm with. If I, by grace, under grace, be a partaker of that meat, why should I be evil spoken of for eating that meat? Why should I care that my testimony is marred in the eyes of those who simply don't understand? It's not my fault they're ignorant. If I've given thanks before the Lord, why can't I do what I am to do freely? And the answer is this. Take, take note of this. I know that it's a little warm in here today. I apologize for that. But take note of this. Your liberty was not purchased by you. Your liberty was purchased by Christ and given to you. Your liberty is a gift. It is not a right. And the one who gave you that liberty is asking you to use that liberty responsibly unto a singular end. That end is not your happiness. That end is Christ's glory. That is why you are free. You are not free for yourself. You are free for Christ. He purchased it. He gave it to you. It was his gift to you. And he's saying, now use it responsibly. So use it. That's why. That is why your liberty can be judged on another man's conscience. Because the one who gave it to you has asked you to do so. And if you love him, obey him. Right? That's what this is about. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Freedom is never free. It always comes at a cost. In this case, the cost was not yours. You have inherited this liberty in Christ. That's why your liberty can be judged by another man's conscience. Because whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, you do it to the glory of God. This is the law of Christ. This is the standard by which we live this life. Three points of application as we close. Number one, you are free from the law. Things are just things. Temporal, material things, they don't defile the spiritual. The things of this world, regardless of the morality that we or anyone else assigns to them, will all just burn up one day. And in Christ, I have been made free from the sweeping and binding obligations that have assigned me to this rigid moral structure to eat meat, to drink, to observe holy days and Sabbaths, external standards, external rituals. These things we are free from. And as always, this does not mean that those things are wrong. Just because I've been made free from something doesn't mean I have to free myself from it. Just because I have been made free from eating uh, meat, uh, from, from dietary laws does not mean I should not put myself on some dietary restriction. Just because I have been made free from the Sabbath day does not mean I should not regard a day as unto the Lord. But if this is what we are focused on, which is very tempting... Because these are the things that we can see and these are the things that we can touch and feel and taste. These are the things that, that we can dig our, sink our teeth into and have some objective standard by which we can say I'm doing it or I'm not doing it. But if this is our focus, then you've missed it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they've had very clean outside cups. 
but inside they were filthy. Very ornate tombs, but inside they were full of dead men's bones. If we follow Christ, the Spirit of God will cleanse the inside, and then we will be clean from the inside out. So remember that you're free from the law. Number two, this point that, we get, that I, I mentioned just a few moments ago, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. We had this point come up several months ago in a Tuesday evening when we were talking about biblical decision-making. All things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. We have spoken over the past two weeks about the law of Christ, and that centers around two concepts. Love God with all your heart, soul, and might. Love your neighbor as yourself. When I evaluate any action, deed, appearance, thought, I begin with my relationship with God and whether or not God can and will be glorified by what I'm doing. I filter it through the Word of God, and I make sure that in principle and in precept, it is right before the Lord. After that, love your neighbor as yourself. I consider my action as it relates to my brother or sister in Christ. Will I be causing a brother and sister in Christ to stumble, to come to a faith crisis by doing this around them or by asking them to be a part of something that I'm doing that I feel I am free to do? Then what about my testimony as it relates to the world? Can I do this without marring my testimony before the unbelieving world? Can a person who knows that I am a follower of Christ reconcile that with the decision that I have just made? And if those do not reconcile, if it is going to confuse or to mar the testimony of Christ before the unbeliever, I might be fully within my rights to do it, but I still shouldn't. Then I act or I don't. And just because I have the knowledge to understand that I can do something material or temporal under grace doesn't mean doing it will not sin against Christ through sinning against a brother or through sinning against the testimony of Christ in the world. And all of this matters because it's the law of Christ. Third and finally, your liberty was bought with a price and specifically intended unto God's exclusive glory. Always remember that the standard of grace is not about you. Your liberty is not about you. This is one of the problems, as I've mentioned, that we have within the society that that we live in today in the United States. This generation has come to see liberty as entitlement, lacking any intent or end except for one's own personal lusts. This society has failed to understand that the responsibility that comes with liberty is built in. The cost of liberty first by those who fought to secure it, then by each of us who intends to live under its benefits, is real. So it is with Christ as well. You did not earn the liberty into which you have entered. You did not purchase it. You don't deserve it. It was purchased at a very high cost by Christ himself with a singular goal in mind, that those who enter into this liberty would do so through an acknowledgement of a singular goal, That whether I eat or drink or whatsoever I do, I will do it to the glory of God. I'm free within Christ to live that way. That everything, every testimony, every word, every action, every longing, every appearance, every thought, every intent would redound to the glory of God, the one who has freed me to live this way. And I find this to be liberty, not bondage, because when I enter into this liberty, God works in me both to will and to do of His Good pleasure. He calls me into it. He enables me to do it. He blesses me for it. To this end, I refuse to settle for anything less. I will stand fast in my liberty. I will not be brought back into the bondage of simply a set of moral laws. 
Not because I seek license, but because I seek a higher law. I seek to the law of liberty. I seek to the law of Christ. I live unbound, free from the compulsions of guilt and of shame, unfettered from the restraints of the material and the temporal obligations, not so that I might live unto myself, but rather that I might be free to live unto the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And then I glory in God through Christ. I willingly and gladly bind my liberty to my brother's conscience as necessary because it's what my Lord would want of me. I willingly and gladly bind my liberty to the testimony of Christ among the unbelieving world because it is what my Lord would want of me because my liberty works unto that end because that's the point of my liberty. My liberty in Christ frees me in maximum creativity, maximum flexibility to work toward that end in ways that my character, personality, culture, and time can both understand and receive. Never to the exclusion of righteousness, peace, or joy. Never at the expense of the spiritual because liberty is not a license. Now, next time we are together, we're going to direct our attention back to the context in 1 Timothy, the purpose of the law as Paul presents it. Formally, then, we end our series today. And if I could lay out the set of principles that I would desire to you, for you to take from this series and to carry it with you, it would be this. Christ purchased for you this liberty, realized in our lives through grace. Grace is not liberty from constraint. It's liberty from the bounds of material and temporal constraints in deference to the spiritual kingdom values. The moment of our salvation, we died in Christ. We died to the law. We died to self. We died to sin. We died so that we might live unto Christ. Born again into a distinct purpose of glorifying God in every thought, intent, and action and enabling us to do so by the Spirit of God. And any philosophy, whether it be of legality or whether it be of license, that threatens this, that competes with this system, is at best out of balance. At worst, it is malignant to grace. And to follow these principles, to follow legality or license, is to compromise my relationship with Christ, is to compromise the degree to which He can use me and the degree to which I can grow. It lowers my ceiling. And it will tend me toward ineffectiveness, if not in my generation, then certainly, certainly the generations to come. And we must guard ourselves from the temptation to bind ourselves back under anything that is not the law of Christ. And we will be tempted to do so because it is so much easier to evaluate some set of external standards than it is to walk in a right relationship with God through the Spirit. It's so much easier to have a checklist than it is to live moment-by-moment relationship evaluating each decision on the basis of the glory of Christ and the will of God. But this is what I've been born again to do. So I ask this as we close. How are you doing today? Did the Holy Spirit take the Word of God today and apply it to your lives in some very meaningful way? I'm not calling anyone here today to change the manner in which you're living your life, nor is the Word of God. This is about a mindset. This is about a heart intent. This is about a direction in which our 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 intentions are driving us. The Spirit of God is driving us. Are you loving your brother? Are you loving that unbeliever? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Are you actually fulfilling what James calls the royal law? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Is that truly the way you're living your life? This is what your liberty has purchased you into. Are you living it today? Let's close in prayer.